My name is Chantal Haynes. I am the daughter of Deborah Marie Blackcrow. I'm also the collateral victim of Rodney Patrick McNeil, and this is my mother's story. Welcome back to another episode of Unjustly Podcast. My name is Sandy, and this is my co-host, Stephanie. Hi. So today's a special episode because it intersects with multiple important issues in our society that deserves the utmost awareness and attention brought to them. I'm talking about Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. So let's talk about those real quick. We'll start with the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women movement. It has been expanded to be more inclusive, so it also is known as Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, Two-Spirit, and Trans. So for short, M-M-I-W-G-2-S-T. And it's an epidemic that affects Indigenous people in Canada and the United States. According to Wikipedia, the violence against Indigenous women has been described as a Canadian national crisis and a genocide. The movement has expanded to the United States, where the crisis also exists. In 2016, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, love him. I think we can agree we both love him. Agreed. Okay. He established the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. The inquiry proved that between the years 1980 and 2012, Indigenous women and girls represented 16% of all female homicides in Canada, while constituting only 4% of the female population. An Indigenous female is seven times more likely to be a victim of violence or go missing than any other female which is an astronomical statistic that shows just how much indigenous women are disproportionately affected by violence and overrepresented among homicide victims. In the United States, Native American women are more than twice as likely to experience violence than any other demographic. One in three Native women is sexually assaulted during her life, and 67% of these assaults are perpetrated by non-Natives. So this is a huge issue in North America. So activists in both countries are now fighting to bring awareness to the connection between sex trafficking, sexual harassment, sexual assault, and the women who go missing and are murdered. So there is a lot that goes into this injustice, and I think, um, I want to say we, but probably Steph, are planning on doing an episode on just this topic specifically. I just wanted to touch base on this real quick just for my episode. Uh, so second, we have the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, which is on November 25th every year, which is also the day that this episode will be released. So this also relates to my case today. Um, and don't forget, November is Native American Heritage Month, just in case I needed another reason to choose this case. But the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women is a day to raise awareness for the fact that women around the world are subject to rape, domestic violence, and other forms of violence, and that it is often ignored or accepted by society. So this case intersects with uh, multiple issues as we remember the women who have experienced violence in their lives and the disproportionate effects on indigenous women in particular. Another little twist to this case, though, is that it is possibly a wrongful conviction case that may actually be guilty. So what happens when the family of the victim believes without a doubt that a man who has been declared or trying to be declared as wrongfully convicted is the actual murderer? So with that, this is the story of Deborah Blackcrow. 
And the person that you heard at the beginning of this episode is Deborah Blackrow's daughter, who you will hear an interview from a little bit later in this episode. So I got my sources from Wikipedia, an article from thelastrealindians.com by Ray Rose, an article in Unicorn Riot by Darren Thompson, Mm -hmm. uh, the California Innocence Project, an article in CV Independent by Brian Blue Sky called It Just Doesn't Add Up, and information from the San Bernardino District Attorney website. Deborah Blackrow was born in Wyoming in 1958 to Arapaho and Oglala Lakota parents. Deborah's mother was forced to live in a boarding school as a child. If you haven't heard of the boarding schools, Steph mentioned a little bit earlier, um, but the Native American children were forced to attend them. I highly recommend you do research on it um, because it's a crazy part of our history that is extremely shameful. Uh, there is a podcast called Hashtag History, and they do an episode about this. Um, it's really good. It's episode 43, so go check them out. So Deborah herself attended a Catholic school where the children would be hit for using their native tongue. Deborah was also the third eldest out of 16 children. Crazy, right? That's pretty crazy, but my grandma had 14. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) jeez. Like, it's crazy, but I mean, it happens. Yeah, no, I have two, and I'm just like, "Mm." (laughs) Growing up in Wyoming, her family saw racism at its worst and even saw a sign that said no Indians allowed on an old building. So eventually, the family moved to Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, although her home was small and didn't have running water or electricity. But Deborah helped care for her siblings and did well in school. She ran cross-country and entered into pageants. Unfortunately, during her senior year, she was raped by her brother's friend, and it did go unreported. However, through the trauma, she was able to graduate high school and go on to study nursing. Deborah goes on to have four children, Chantel, Deanna, Marcus, and Shanti, And then in 1995, Deborah meets Rodney Patrick McNeil. Just two years later, on March 10th, 1997, Deborah and her unborn daughter, Samara, were brutally murdered in her home. The following morning, the news broke to Deborah's children. Through the grief, the family knew the killer was Deborah's husband, Rodney Patrick McNeil. Three years later, in March of 2000, McNeil was finally convicted of Deborah and Samara's murder and Deborah's family believed that justice was finally served and they could feel safe again. However, this relief did not last long because six years later, the California Innocence Project took up the case and began fighting for McNeil's innocence. So now we have a battle between the California Innocence Project and Deborah's surviving family, and it's gotten a little ugly. So let's go over the case in detail and see how we ended up where we are today. Deborah was known as a very caring and dedicated nurse and was loved by everyone. But when she met McNeil in 1995, a volatile relationship ensued and the abuse began almost immediately. The domestic violence even occurred in front of the children, which they had to sometimes tell McNeil to stop. Deborah would make excuses for him, saying he didn't mean to hurt her, which is a common response for victims of domestic violence, so this by no means minimizes how he was treating her. McNeil's controlling nature and his violent tendencies continued to escalate, and eventually three of Deborah's children decided to leave and move in with their father. McNeil would take all of their money and spend it on himself, leaving Deborah without money for necessities. When McNeil believed that Deborah or the kids took some money, he was enraged and pushed a pregnant Deborah down to the ground violently. After a long time of the violence and deceit, Deborah finally had enough and was getting the courage to leave McNeil. 
While visiting her children in Nevada, Deborah told her children she was leaving McNeil and was going to be back with them for good now. Her children were over the moon excited to have their mom back. She said she had to go back to California to get some things. They suspect now she had to get some clothes and a tax return check. But she said she would be right back. This was about two days before the murder. So after getting back to California the night before the murder, Deborah and McNeil got into a fight and Deborah destroyed some of his things and items in the house. After so long of being abused, she was finally pushed to her limit and she wanted to get him where it hurt, which was the material things that he spent all their money on and that Deborah felt he cared more about than her and their unborn child. So the next day, McNeil left to work angry, which, side note, McNeil was a San Bernardino County probation officer. And this is a very important side note. And looking back at some of the domestic violence reports, it seems as though police officers may have downplayed some of the incidents to protect him. So now we're on to the day of the murder. Let's look at the timeline. McNeil gets to work sometime between 7.30 and 8. At 9.15 a.m., Deborah's friend, Terry Lynn, went to visit her. At 10 a.m., while Deborah was on the phone with Kaiser, Someone she apparently knew entered the home, and that's according to the Kaiser clerk. At 11.17 a.m., Deborah's oldest child calls and spoke to her. And Deborah continued to say that she was looking forward to leaving McNeil and finally being free from his controlling and abusive behavior. So McNeil came home sometime before 12.13 p.m., allegedly, because a neighbor says they saw the car um, already parked in the driveway at the time. Deborah's family believes this is when he murdered Deborah because she was planning on leaving him that day. 911 was called around 1230 after McNeil ran to a neighbor's house for help and police arrived at 1232. Deborah, who was six months pregnant, was found submerged underwater in the bathtub. A trail of blood led from the living room to the master bathroom. It was determined Deborah had been beaten and stabbed, but she ultimately died by manual strangulation. A jar of pennies and a clothes hamper was found on top of her. She also smelled of chemicals, possibly bleach. bleach. Mm -hmm. On the mirror was written N-word lover, but it's suspected it may have been written to cover up uh, the murder as a hate crime to throw off police. McNeil told police he tried to lift Deborah out of the bathtub when he found her, but was unsuccessful. Due to their history of domestic violence, the police may have began suspecting that McNeil may have killed Deborah in a fit of rage. But it was McNeil's behavior after the murder that sealed his fate. The following day after the murder, although McNeil was told to stay away from the crime scene, he showed up looking for the tax return check, the same check that Deborah had gone back to California for. At Deborah's funeral, McNeil made no attempt to speak or comfort Deborah's children or family. They he, were, sorry, they weren't his children? No, they weren't his children. Okay. She was pregnant with his child, though. Oh, wow. Okay. He sat in the back of the room and never shed a tear for his deceased wife or unborn daughter. I understand everyone grieves differently, but I think it is important to note that it didn't seem like he had any type of reaction to the murder. He also only gave Deborah's family $27 to help with the funeral costs. Oh yeah. my God. Mm -hmm. At the funeral, McNeil did not help carry the casket and had even demanded that it be a closed casket. 
Prior to the funeral, McNeil attempted to immediately cremate Deborah's remains, and her family had to beg and plead with him to allow them to bury her in a traditional funeral on the reservation where her family was. And just four months after Deborah's murder, McNeil was already in a romantic relationship with another woman. Of course. So, a few months before the murder, McNeil had taken out an insurance policy <laughs> on Deborah for $100,000, naming himself as the sole beneficiary. I'm sorry, I've seen enough true crime shows that anytime a husband or wife takes out an insurance policy on the spouse and they are immediately killed after, that should be the first red flag. That's why I never told him that he's my beneficiary. I just, we just had an open enrollment, but I haven't told him that he's the, the beneficiary because I don't want to give him any reason to, to think anything can happen. Like, oh no, it's still my mom. My mom needs it more than you. Mm. I feel like anytime an insurance policy is taken out, it should be like this, not a red flag, but like a, all right, let's keep tabs on this, this couple. Is, this is ridiculous, but as I'm going through my open enrollment every single time I've had to do it, mm-hmm. I'm always like, this feels so shady. I'm taking out yeah. an insurance policy. Like, this can give someone reason to kill right. me. So I'm like, I want to make it a big one so that if anything happens, like, people They're are covered. taken care of. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't want to make it so big that it gives anyone, like, incentive to be like, dude, she's worth a couple hundred. Right. And, like, let's... So yeah, Tim doesn't know. Don't tell him. (laughs) (laughs) So immediately following Deborah's death, McNeil tried to cash out on the insurance policy. However, this did prompt the life insurance company to conduct a diligent investigation on the case because they do not let you cheat the system. Mm -hmm. Eventually, when McNeil was charged and subsequently convicted of Deborah's murder, he was no longer eligible to collect the life insurance. So he then tried to collect the insurance through his own children, which were not Deborah's biological children. And that's where McNeil's ex-wife, Amber, comes into play. Because at this time, she starts to claim that McNeil is innocent. Deborah had told her children in the past through a letter that Amber had always caused financial issues with her and McNeil and was known to try to take as much money as she could from them. So she's like, I'll go out there and say you're innocent, but you have to give me a cut? That's what it sounds like. Wow. After McNeil was sentenced to 30 years to life, Deborah's family thought the case was over and began their process of moving on and healing. But recently that came to a screeching halt when Chantel, Deborah's daughter, discovered that the California Innocence Project, which I'll now refer to as CIP for short, had taken on McNeil's case and was doing everything they could to free him without ever reaching out to Deborah's family. And I should say by this time, they had already been working on his case for like 10 years. So Chantel claims that when she reached out to the CIP, they sent them a letter patronizing them and Deborah's family saying that they didn't understand their goals and talked about another case where DNA evidence was used to exonerate someone. However, that didn't apply to Deborah's case as they did not have such DNA. Again, when Chantel tried to confront the CIP, she claims They then told her that they had already invested too much into the case, and it sounded like they weren't going to take any other evidence into consideration that the family wanted to bring forward. Chantel states that in a phone conversation with one of the CIP lawyers on the case, um, that they told her, even if he's guilty, we have worked so hard on this case that we have to see it through. Deborah's family was also extremely frustrated when they believed that the CIP was changing the narrative to portray McNeil's innocence. As an example, they say that the CIP and one of their media supporters said, 
Patrick is a black man and his wife was a white woman. So when police arrived and found Patrick at the scene of the crime, they assumed his guilt. However, Deborah was not white. And unfortunately, it does seem as though Deborah's case slipped through the cracks as being part of the missing and murdered indigenous women movement because her name was listed as McNeil and not Black Crow. Hmm. So let's go over why the California Innocence Project believes McNeil is innocent. And along the way, I will be interjecting Deborah's family's counter arguments. CIP says that McNeil was at work all morning. He met with some clients and his computer was able to track some activity before noon. He was supposed to take Deborah to an appointment at 1230. So he left around noontime and two co-workers allegedly say they rode down in the same elevator with McNeil around 1215 p.m. Then he has to walk to his car and then he has about an eight minute drive to the home, which puts him at about 1225 p.m. arriving home. Cops were called and they arrived by 1232. So Deborah's family says this doesn't add up because even though there's the two alleged witnesses saying he was in an elevator at 1215, there's also the other witness saying that his truck was at his home at 1213. So we have conflicting witnesses statements already. Also, Deborah's family points out that the appointment was at 1230. So why would McNeil be arriving home at 1230? He should have gotten there earlier um, to make the appointment in time. Mm -hmm. So with this timeline, CIP is saying that there's absolutely no time for McNeil to have hit, stabbed, and strangled Deborah to death and drag her body to the bathtub, ransack the home, and clean himself up as he did not have any blood um, or water on his clothes. And if their timeline is correct, then I would say it makes sense. Um, but I'm confused as to why there aren't video footage of McNeil leaving the building when he says he did um, to cooperate a time. He worked as a probation officer, so I would have assumed that type of building would have cameras mm -hmm. in them. Um, so I asked Chantel about this, and she hadn't heard of any video being used to prove CIP's timeline either. Mm. And I know that CIP you know, tries to be as diligent Fair. as possible. So I feel like if there was video footage to confirm this timeline, they would have like put it out mm -hmm. all over the place, but it doesn't exist. So I don't know if that building just didn't have cameras, but it's a, or maybe it exists, but it's no a county one, office, but no one on her side has been able to find it. Mm -hmm. Like maybe CIP did find it, but they're like, and it doesn't uh, work. It doesn't work. Could so be. like, let's just not bring it to light. Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a normal person would probably have kind of a hard time trying to track something like that down. Mm -hmm. Like maybe they just don't know where to find it. A second discrepancy is the ransacking of the home. CIP says McNeil wouldn't have had time to do that. But multiple people, including Deborah's friend who saw her that morning, says that Deborah was the one who trashed the home out of anger the night before. Because remember, they got mm -hmm. in a fight and she wanted to get them where it hurts, which was all their stuff. So she trashed the home herself so it wasn't part of like the murder mm -hmm. so there had to have been time for that to happen during the day um a lot of people on deborah's side are saying like no that was already done right another thing to note about this though is that cip is saying mcneil's clothes was clean and had nothing on him but if you remember from earlier in the story mcneil said he tried to get her out of the bathtub but couldn't so wouldn't it make more sense that he at least would have had a little bit of blood or water on him from trying to lift her? The CIP also says that there was unidentified hairs and fiber found on Deborah. Recent DNA testing of it came back inconclusive. So that timeline alone is what made CIP pick up the case. 
even though there are obvious discrepancies. First, they try to pin the murder on Deborah's best friend, Terry Lynn, who visited her that morning, but apparently that fell through. Then they pointed the finger to McNeil's half-brother, who was already in prison by then for gang-related offenses. Their new evidence were witnesses stating that McNeil's half-brother, Jeffrey West, confessed to them that he was actually the one that killed Deborah. So West did have a criminal history uh, with deep ties to gang affiliations. Apparently, he was also suspected of killing other people, and a couple of his exes came forward to say he was abusive. Supposedly, in 2005, West pleaded guilty to a double homicide in Nevada, but I could not for the life of me find any articles or information pertaining to those alleged cases tied to West. Um, so I did ask Chantal if she had any information about it, but she said it was like gang related stuff. So it probably didn't make media news, hmm. but I did try really hard to find that information and it was just nowhere. So McNeil and Wes's half-sister, along with Wes's friend, both stated that West confessed to them that he killed Deborah because he was worried about Patrick's future. They both testified this at an evidentiary hearing. However, West pleaded the fifth, and the court did not find the new witnesses credible. Another thing to note, in an interview prior to the hearing, West said he would do anything for his brother, and that if he did kill Deborah, there would have been no way he would let McNeil take the fall for it. So Deborah's family paints West in a slightly different picture. Uh, they say, yes, he had a bad history, um, but he showed care and affection towards Deborah's family after the murder, which was the complete opposite of how McNeil was towards them. He was heartbroken at the funeral and he was crying a lot, according to the family. McNeil was? No, West. The brother-in-law. The brother, the half-brother was crying at the funeral and McNeil was not. Was not. Mm. And Wes actually took in Deborah's older daughter afterwards, trying to help out the family. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really nice. So they said he was really caring for them. You know, they loved him. This is not something they would have suspected from him. Mm -hmm. um, Chantal also told me that one of his nieces or something had asked him specifically, like, did, did you, do, you it? do it? And he's like, no, absolutely not. And some of their families also like, mm, no, we think McNeil did it. Mm -hmm. um, also, according to San Bernardino County Deputy District Attorney Connie Lasky, West lived almost 250 miles away from the scene of the murder, which to her doesn't add up to their story. So Wes's alibi was that he was in another state when it happened. And Deborah's daughter points out that Deborah visited Nevada often near where West was. If he wanted to kill her, why wouldn't he do it there? But also, like, what would his motive be? Well, CIP is saying he wanted to protect Patrick's future, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. It just, I get it. He has, like, a criminal background. He was, like, in a gang or in gang-related activities. But, mm -hmm. like, from the little I know from gangs, they're not killing family members. They're not, you know, like, it's For not. For no reason. This sounds way more like, this fits better as a domestic abuse mm -hmm. case or mm -hmm. incident than it does a gang-related incident. It Agreed. makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, he had plenty of opportunities to murder her in Nevada if he wanted to do so. So why would he travel to California to do it in McNeil's home, which would lead to him as a suspect, especially after saying he would do anything to protect his brother. And so protect just, him from what though? Yeah. From divorce? She, yeah. Come on. It's, it's just not making sense. It's not adding up right now. 
Um, so in 2013, the California Innocence Project reviewed all of their cases and identified 12 that varied in convictions that were at a legal dead end in their fight for freedom. The CIP also considered these cases to have overwhelming evidence of factual innocence. McNeil's case was included, and he became politicized as one of the CIP's original California 12. Three CIP attorneys embarked on a 712-mile walk from San Diego to Sacramento to raise awareness about the California 12 and wrongful convictions. At the end, they delivered clemency petitions to Governor Jerry Brown asking for the California 12's freedom. Brown denied all of them. And in 2015, the CIP filed a petition for commutation instead. It's also kind of strange, I guess, that they would pick this case as one of their 12 if the cases they were picking were cases that were at a dead end but also had factual um, evidence of Mm -hmm. innocence because this doesn't have that to me so far. Like, I don't, I haven't heard anything that's like, okay, well, yeah, that's kind of like, how do you explain this? There's nothing so far that's been like, okay, this is kind of up in the air. I feel like we've gone through cases before where it's like this overwhelming, like, oh my gosh, like Mm -hmm. obviously he's innocent type of thing and Mm -hmm. they still don't get exonerated or they still don't get their chance to have their story heard. But then you have this case and it's like, how did you pick it up in the first place? Yeah, well, (laughs) Mm. I think we'll get into that later. So I've always respected the CIP and the work that they have done, um, but everyone makes mistakes and I don't think anyone's record could be perfect forever. This case is questionable, but it sounds like they're not going to back down. They've tried to change the narrative using racism as an issue, even though Deborah wasn't white like they had claimed, and they changed their story on who they believe did it once the first story didn't hold up. They are trying to throw everything and see what works, which I get when you feel strongly about a case, but it shouldn't come to the expense of the victim's family and the safety of society. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I've said before when someone there's a team trying to get someone like exonerated or whatever, and the district attorney or you know, the prosecutor's like, no, absolutely, I'm not mm-hmm. gonna give up. And we're like, dude. Admit that it was a mistake. Move on. People make mistakes. I feel like this is the same situation, just in reverse. Yes. You know, it's it's hard for anyone to admit they made a mistake. I get that, especially when they put so much effort into it. But that shouldn't override justice. Regardless of what way it's going. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In March 2020, California Governor Gavin Newsom decided to commute McNeil's sentence, paving the way for McNeil to seek parole. Newsom claimed that McNeil had committed himself to his self-improvement, despite ever taking responsibility and despite getting in trouble multiple times in prison for contraband cell phones and selling heroin. On October 20th, 2020, the California Parole Review Unit granted McNeil parole, despite pleas from Deborah's family and friends. Also, instead of giving Deborah's family the traditional 120 days to appeal the decision, they're only giving them 30 days. There's an issue with the parole hearing, though, and if you remember from the Free Ray Gray case that we did in episode seven, Gray was basically verbally assaulted because he refused to say he was guilty. The Mm -hmm. whole point of parole is to prove that they take responsibility for their actions and show that they've been rehabilitated. McNeil has done neither. There were two parole officers um, at the hearing. One parole officer, David Long, I was told wasn't paying attention to the victim impact statements and seemed to already have his mind made up that he should be granted parole. 
The second parole officer, though, Lam Na, did not agree he should be granted parole and actually stated that McNeil is a danger to society and can't be rehabilitated if he never even took accountability. So there was a split decision, which rarely happens, so I've been told. But as we know, parole was granted anyway. Yeah, so yeah. How, how does that work? I have no idea. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's just how it was. I didn't know that's how it worked, but he got it. Multiple people and groups wrote letters to Newsom pleading to change his position on the case, including the San Bernardino DA and the president of the Oglala Sioux tribe, who says at the very least he needs to serve his minimum sentence of 30 years before being considered for parole. State Representative Tamara St. John states, Governor Newsom's granting of McNeil's parole, combined with the granting of his parole, completely undermines the efforts many of our people have been working to address missing and murdered indigenous women. We're dealing with a case where justice is not served. I also wanted to read a statement from San Bernardino District Attorney Jason Anderson. He states, The decision by the parole board to release Rodney McNeil is appalling and wrong. We will ask the governor to deny the recommendation. Mr. McNeil is a convicted double murderer who has given no less than three different versions of why he is not the killer of his wife and his daughter. A jury and appellate court have always rejected these lies. Shortly after the murders, McNeil filed a false insurance claim regarding the murders to profit from his crimes. Apparently, these actions do not affect his credibility in front of the parole board. Mr. McNeil refuses to this day to take responsibility for the murders. At least one parole board commissioner actually thinks he is innocent, which is not his call to make. Unbelievably, the board decided to release Mr. McNeil because he was only in trouble a couple of times in prison for contraband cell phones and heroin possession. Otherwise, he was considered a decent prisoner, which they all should be anyways. The parole board's decision regarding double murderer Rodney Patrick McNeil strips away the notice and reliance the victim's family placed in the criminal justice system. These ideals are the bedrock of an ordered society. Today, in this case, those ideals were discarded by government bureaucrats in favor of a man who killed his wife and daughter. So, on November 13th, 2020... Convicted killer Ronnie Patrick McNeil was scheduled to be set free on the streets on parole. This was a few days prior to this recording. But at last minute, we found out that McNeil's file had not been sent to California Governor Newsom yet, and he had decided to allow Deborah's family and advocates to have a meeting with him first. So the clock is now ticking. The race to get all the signatures, letters, and bring awareness to this case is on a time crunch. At the time of this recording, we have about four to eight weeks to get all of this done. But there are advocates, legislatives, and DAs, prior and current, (laughs) all gearing up for this meeting to convince Newsom to deny parole. So we will definitely keep you all updated on what happens next with this case. So these are my personal thoughts on the case. Like I said earlier, there's a lot of back and forth, and he said, she said on the case. Um, it's sounding like it's basically the prosecutor's witnesses against the defense's witnesses. Um, so it's tough to be 100% certain of one side or the other. But all cases seem to always have the convict on their defense team against the victim's family and the DA, right? So it's very rare to ever see both sides in agreement. But what I do know is that Deborah's family's emotions are very real and only they know who McNeil was behind closed doors. 
Majority of abuse happens in private. Uh, McNeil's coworkers may not have viewed him in such a light, but Deborah's children were there. They experienced her pain, and that's why they are now scared to see him free. So we know for a fact that McNeil wasn't the best person. He was abusive, controlling, and tried to commit insurance fraud. Um, The worst part is that he was a probation officer while doing all of this. Uh, He is in charge of criminals while doing criminal activity himself. And the scarier thing is that he has a criminology degree. He knows the system. He has friends in law enforcement, and he knows how to manipulate the system. I think he's guilty. (laughs) I think that goes without saying. Um, There's a lot of little things spread out throughout the case that I was not able to add into the story for time purposes. Um, And this came about with my conversations with Deborah's daughter, Chantel. But looking at everything together, this story just doesn't feel right. Um, I think his coworkers were trying to cover up for him with the elevator story. And the fact that Deborah was going to leave him and like the day after she comes back home to get her stuff, she gets murdered. Mm -hmm. Uh, Soon after a life insurance policy was taken out, um, it's just too much of a coincidence, in my opinion. But let's play devil's advocate for a second. Let's assume that CIP's timeline of events is correct and that McNeil was not the murderer. Let's also assume that they're correct about his half-brother, Wes, being the perpetrator. So here's my conspiracy theory about that. (laughs) What's to say that McNeil didn't conspire to have Wes kill Deborah for him? My gut is telling me he somehow had a hand in it, whether it be physically or behind the scenes, and this is why I think that. First, West allegedly told someone that Deborah needed to be killed, quote, to protect Patrick's future. How would he even gotten the idea that his future needed saving if McNeil wasn't coaching him into thinking that? Also, I would technically consider getting a $100,000 life insurance check as protecting his future as well. Mm-hmm. Second, according to Deborah's family, West was visibly sad at the funeral, was caring towards the family, and helped take in Deborah's oldest child after. If he was the killer, this sounds like he felt remorse or guilt afterwards. And this could have came because he didn't really want to kill her, but was forced to or convinced into it by McNeil. Third, Deborah had an appointment at 12.30, but according to CIP's timeline, McNeil didn't arrive to the home until close to 12.30. So why would he show up late? Why would he take his time getting home? Unless he knew they weren't going to make it to the appointment. Mm. Or, mm-hmm. yeah, or he wanted to make sure everything was done before he got there. Mm-hmm. And fourth, and again, this is just my conspiracy theory if I'm playing devil's advocate. A jar of pennies and a clothes hamper was left on top of Deborah's body. Those are random items, but could very well be symbolic. Deborah and McNeil fought about money a lot. In articles I keep reading, um, it says that she was left penniless. Mm-hmm. Deborah was planning on leaving McNeil, so what a slap in the face would it be if a hamper was thrown on her because she had came back to get her clothes and money. Mm-hmm. So with her trying to leave McNeil, it's like, oh, here's some money yeah. and clothes. Yeah. There you go. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm having a hard time accepting that Wes would randomly murder Deborah so violently and then be so heartbroken about it afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also hard for me to believe that McNeil would have completely clean hands in this case. Mm -hmm. What is your verdict, Steph? Mm -mm. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with what you said. Both of those make sense. Like, I agree. I think he most likely had something to do with it. Mm Mm-hmm. How and like to what extent, like, did he actually get his hands dirty, quote unquote? Right. I don't know. But both of those scenarios I could see kind of like happening. Yeah. So like 
maybe he didn't want to do it himself and he knew he had like a brother right or half brother would do anything for him would not only do anything for him but has a criminal past so probably wouldn't be that hard for him to commit something like that or like do something like that so i could totally see that being a possibility especially because it sounds like he's manipulating and Mm -hmm. you know so like i could see him manipulating his brother but i could also see like why was he completely dry why would why didn't he have any blood on him like he tried to lift her out of the bathtub yeah if he tried Mm -hmm. to lift her out of the bathtub like to me it just sounds like a major cover-up to yes. what scenario i don't know but it does sound like a cover-up mm-hmm. so i don't know it's hard because like you said it's all he, he said, said she, she said. said but like you said like it's kind of stacking up against him mm-hmm. and i don't see anything that would prove otherwise yeah we've seen cases that have so much more in favor of their innocence and they still don't get out but this guy has really nothing <laughs> other than these two co-workers saying he was in the elevator and it two people saying what like the crime scene wasn't investigated thoroughly like it doesn't sound like it either no. i feel like in cases like this in other in similar cases like they were looking at the room they're looking at the bathroom they're mm-hmm. you know the they're the examining like for possible head injuries or other kind of bodily injuries on the victim and there doesn't seem to be that much so like why right unless maybe there are other people helping him Mm -hmm. trying to clean this all up trying to kind of brush it under the you know under the rug and like calling it a day because to me it just seems like something this violent would have deserved a more thorough investigation right it sounds like there's some sketchy things going on yeah from start to finish yeah So when I learned about this case, I wanted to make sure we gave a voice to Deborah, which means giving a voice to her surviving family. So I tracked down one of Deborah's children and reached out to her, and she was more than happy to tell Deborah's side of the story during this very difficult time of McNeil's pending release. So I'll leave it to Chantel to speak on Deborah's behalf. My mother. There's so much that runs through my head when it comes to my mother. She was very eccentric in a sense like she would be very professional when she was at work always wore like a french roll in her hair little short five two lady like behind her 15 soaking wet and uh always this big smile on her face always laughing the neighborhood children loved her uh, whenever she would come home with groceries they're like you need any help miss black crow it was a wonderful feeling like uh, my parents were divorced so I was raised with my my dad for the most part but during his last year in the air force we all were able to live with my mother so all four of us children were there together with my mom in this two-bedroom apartment and my sister is a teenager at the time so she had her own room the boys slept in the living room on the couch and I got to sleep with my mom which was so exciting. Every night we would pray and she would hold my hand while we would sleep. And she was just a caring woman. She loved children. She loved helping women. She worked at the Women's Health Center out here in Las Vegas. She loved to laugh. She was such a corny woman, like so naive too. There are certain songs on the radio. She was like, I like this song. We're like, mom, you know what it's about? And we would tell her, she's like, oh my gosh. Like... <laughs> so innocent and but she loved her people she was she was trying to teach me my Lakota language at the time and uh, she was always an inspiration to her sisters because she was always in school 
she was a devout Christian, like always at church three times a week. Like she, she just was really happy to have her kids all together and to be a mom. I'm like, yeah, you know, I love my mom. I was just a little girl. I, you know, who doesn't want to be around her mom? She, she always made me feel loved. I was an awkward teen, <laughs> an awkward teenager. <laughs> she made me feel like such a beautiful little girl. And, you know, who, what, what woman wouldn't want to now all of a sudden feel like they feel lucky because they found a man who was a parole officer? Like, wow, someone you could feel safe with. And unfortunately, this man was the one to end up murdering her. The worst memory that I have of Patrick, and there's quite a few. The first one that stands out was when uh, we first were introduced to Patrick. He was around another during their standard courtship as you know, new new lovers. So as kids, we weren't paying attention, but um, we finally were paying attention to who he was. And we were all in the living room, and they were play fighting, but he wrenched my mom's arm behind her back hard enough for her to yelp and uh, in pain. And my brothers started crying. They're only five and seven at the time. So they're crying, and I'm like, what the heck is going on? Like, um, what are you doing to my mom? Like, I'm young, 12 at the time, and my mom had to try to calm us children by saying, oh, they're just playing rough, it's play fighting. And the incidents continued to escalate from there. Like, we weren't children who were really exposed to that type of stuff. So that was definitely brand new and you know you feel like an instant moment of helplessness as a child and multiple moments of the domestic violence took place it's weird circumstances of her having to hide her mail or hide clothes that she bought for me for school like completely have me put the the clothes that we purchased on the side of the house next to the garbage and then when it was time for me to leave, we could retrieve those items. But to do that and to her at this point tell me I'm going to be mailing all of my photos to you, like, it's, it's strange. These are strange moves. Like, you're not, you're not, as a 13-year-old girl, you don't know what the heck is going on. Like, that you trust your mom and you want to make sure, like, you do what she says type thing. She sent her all her mail to me, all her photos. Like, I think that she, I'm thankful that she did because he was destroying items. Like, uh, I was there to witness when they got, got into an argument for a way for him to retaliate was to completely destroy our family heirlooms from my grandfather. He's Native American. We're all Native American, and he created a lot of bone work, decorative items, like literally to just pieces, like all that history gone in a matter of moments. And I start to yell at him, like, I'm 13 years old, but at this point, I'm so angry and mad. Like, how could you do that? Our father, our grandfather's dead. These are things we'll never get back, and you're just going to destroy them because you're, like, mad? Like, you're having a disagreement? There's on and on so many, so many more moments of the domestic violence that we witnessed to, but I felt hopeless the whole time, just hopeless. What I would tell the parole board what is good behavior? 
to completely discount the life of my mother, an indigenous woman, a domestic violence victim, and the life of my unborn sister, to be able to look at Patrick, who continues to point blame anywhere else besides himself, and think that that's good behavior, and to release, to take off six, from a 60-year sentence, 38 years, this was a jury. This was this sentence was passed down by twelve of his peers. A just sentence of two counts of fifteen to thirty. One for my mother and one for my unborn sister. And you feel that twenty three years is enough because he has all these certificates and has all of these college degrees. The weight of it just doesn't match the crime. It maybe it could be because he is a parole officer. But because he is a parole officer, he himself should know that he is looked at as a higher standard ethic rules. He knows what's right and what's wrong. And he chose that even while being a parole officer to commit all of these fraud, insurance frauds and thefts, thinking he's better than you. But you still feel that his good behavior merits being his having a sentence reduced by two thirds to give him a whole second act. At life. That's crazy. I hope that from my situation, that society now has a better lens on looking at all the areas where shortcomings can occur, especially to the victims, um, victims' rights. The fact that there were no resources or programs available or offered to children or collateral victims during the time of the trial for them to have to then find out about statutes of limitations. After the parole hearing decided to grant parole to Rodney Patrick McNeil, I was thinking, okay, what about restitution? This guy is trying to say, continually claim that his brother killed my mother. So that's a wrongful death suit. Learned about statutes of limitations. Oh, I didn't know that restitution, you have three years. Wrongful death, you only have two years. I think that's ridiculous. It's the clock should start when people get released and there should be an end date for wrongful, for wrongful death civil suit. Like these are things that we didn't know as children. It'd be nice to have a resource available in every state, every city for children to know, okay, this horrible thing happened to your family. These are resources for you to help you. The victim services. I didn't find out about that until 14 years later. I'd like for society to understand, you know, they have sites where people who are convicted of sex crimes for them to be on a register. Why don't they have the same thing for if it's a heinous crime? Wouldn't you like to know what kind of murderer you have living next to you? After the parole, for even a double murderer, averages about three to five years, which what used to be life, life parole is now only three to five years. But after three to five years, the victim's family can no longer do a restraining order or any of those type of things because they're no longer on probation. There's nothing that can track them. So they could end up living right next to you and your life is in danger. You're literally walking in fear. I just hope that society understands like there's so much more after the after the hearing. We got to be able to give put more power in the victims for their safety. Because victims have rights too. As of November 13th, 2020, this was the tentative release date of Rodney Patrick McNeil. 
I was able to, with all the due diligence, with all the advocates and of the domestic violence, of missing and murdered indigenous women, all the state legislators from South Dakota, the governors, and every single person who signed and shared my change.org petition, we were able to get set up a meeting with the governor. And with this meeting, it was stated that the parole board has yet to forward the paperwork to the governor for the final confirmation. This means this gives us about two months to really state to the governor, Rodney Patrick McNeil is guilty. Victims have rights. Domestic violence victims have rights. Collateral victims have rights. Missing and murdered indigenous women have rights. This man is a probation officer. He knew what he was doing. He had a motive for insurance money which continually shows that he has not learned in these past 23 years anything. He shows no remorse, so he needs to stay where he belongs to truly think about what he did. But if you could just continue to sign and share, uh, I'm excited to be well-equipped when I go into this meeting with the governor and show him that people are, people are watching. People see this. Like, this is your opportunity right now with the climate that we're in with uh, police reform, that men in higher positions of power need to be held accountable. And if you let this man go free, you're just continuing the cycle of they are on a different playing ground than the rest of us. The last part that I'd like to add is, um, I do hope that people can see that children, even though they're little, these type of things affect them. And they are considered collateral victims, and we tend to overlook them and their needs. I do hope that one day we're able to provide better resources to them. That's my main goal out of all of this. The world is unjust, and it's it's crazy that someone has to fight so hard for someone to stay in jail when they truly did what they did. But I just hope that in the future we think about the children and we help them get a better grasp on some type of normalcy for their future. That's all I hope. (laughs) So what now? Chantel and others are now on a mission to advocate for reform in the criminal justice system. They want to push for a creation of a murder registry similar to a sex offender registry, uh, just like she had mentioned in her interview. Chantel is also pushing for victims' right to be protected and to mandate advocacy organizations such as the CIP to be truthful in their representation as well as notify the victims of a crime when considering becoming involved in someone's case. CIP didn't contact Deborah's family until 10 years after they had taken on McNeil's case, which Chantel believes is too little too late which I thought they would be reaching out regardless of whether like you're the family that you're in, you're fighting for their mm-hmm. innocence or not. Like, I feel like you have a right to know. Yeah. And I think if it was like the government or whoever, like doing something like they do, I think they do reach out to the victim's family to notify them, but it's weird that California innocence project isn't Didn't. kind of doing that too. Mm-hmm. So I feel like they deserve it. And I think it should happen even prior to taking the case, just to kind of like hear all sides, to kind of like get an understanding Mm -hmm. of the case, because there's only so much that I can read about the case. But when you talk to the people that Mm -hmm. were there, when you talk to people that were involved, you get a different lens on it. And I learned so much more when I had that conversation with Chantel. 
Yeah, and if you're trying to do a good job at clearing Being someone's, thorough. yeah, like you would want, you would need to get all sides of the story, not just the one. Yeah. And as you heard in Chantel's interview, Deborah's children were collateral damage, and they did not have representation to help them through the case and how to navigate the aftermath of it. They had no idea of victim services until 14 years after McNeil was convicted. Mm -hmm. Someone needs to help the surviving family learn about the rights they deserve. And Chantal wants to make sure of that. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense. There are victim services where um, they can notify you whenever something happens Mm -hmm. in the case, like if they're going to be paroled or whatever, Mm -hmm. but they didn't know about it. You know, they had to do their own research. They were children when it happened. You know, who are they? to just know this. No one tells them. And so she wants to make sure that no matter what the situation, someone is there to tell them these are the rights that they have from the get-go. Yeah. So my call to action is obviously let's support Deborah's case by signing her change.org petition. And you can find that by searching officer husband murders pregnant indigenous wife and gets sentenced commuted by California governor. Um, we've posted this change.org petition a couple times on our Instagram prior to this recording. So if you've already done so, thank you so much. Um, also I suggest that you learn more about the missing and murdered indigenous women movement, because it is a very serious issue that I believe everyone needs to know about. Mm -hmm. There's a ton of resources online and a ton of podcasts as well. Mm -hmm. Do you got, can you name drop one? Yeah, so one of the ones that I listened to that talks about the residential school system, mm-hmm. um, it's Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. There's two seasons and both cover cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, one of them is an actual adult woman. The other one, um, she was a child when she was taken through okay. the res- residential school system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that one's actually really, really interesting. So I would definitely recommend listening to that one because the story develops as the podcast is oh, okay. going so it wasn't like a here's the story it's like someone actually doing investigative work and mm-hmm. then like going through nice yeah, it's really interesting so i personally learned about deborah black case from an instagram page called red house series so i do suggest that you give them a follow because they have a lot of different information about important issues pertaining to the indigenous community and finally, keep an eye out for Chantel's advocacy work. She's strong and fierce advocate, and I know she's going to do big things. So we'll keep everyone updated on how you can help her with her future endeavors. Very nice. So thank you, Chantel, also for taking the time to do this. Um, she's really been the voice behind her mother, and I really feel like this case wouldn't be where it is today in terms of helping the victim side mm-hmm. if it wasn't for Chantel. You know, she's been single-handedly getting everyone on board, bringing awareness to it. And I know it takes so much work and so much effort, and I'm sure it's tiring. Emotionally, too. Oh, yeah. Because can you imagine having to, like, relive your mm-hmm. your mother's murder? Mm-hmm. Like, trying to get someone to be like, please, like, listen to me. Right. It's so It must be very draining. Yeah. And she's doing it all, and I'm very proud of her. I really like her. She's a really good person, and we support her fully, so... Uh, We will definitely keep everyone updated on her stuff. So my Amplify Corner for today is a small business online jewelry shop called Indigenous Intentions. The brand was created with the intention of increasing awareness for Indigenous and women causes. They state that jewelry is a beautiful part of our Indigenous culture and what better way to make an impact and invest back into the community than by launching collections with a philanthropist initiative. We love creating traditional jewelry with a modern twist. 
Indigenous Intentions supports Indigenous and women artisans and designers worldwide. A portion of proceeds from their MMIW jewelry collections go to MMIW USA. And they have also partnered with Strong Hearts Native Helpline and Indigenous Peoples Movement. You can find them on Etsy and Instagram under Indigenous Intentions. So check them out. They have a lot of really great work. Cute. So that is all for today. Thank you so much for powering through with us with this one. I felt like it was a lot. We have the interview, so it's a lot of information, but let's get the conversation going. Um, reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook, email us on justlypodcast at Gmail. Um, if you want to help out and want to learn more, reach out to us and we can get you in contact with Chantel and see what else you can do for the cause. Yeah. Also, Thanksgiving will be coming up a few days after this episode airs. I hope everyone stays safe. Um, but also, especially during this time when it's Native American Heritage Month, I think it's important that we all take the time to do some research on that. Mm-hmm. Um, because as fun as Thanksgiving is for everybody to eat turkey, that is not all that it's about. There's a lot that goes behind it that's not so pretty. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's important that we all kind of learn about that and educate ourselves on that. And after you do some research, I think it's important, especially in this year and in this time to just take a moment and be thankful for the things that we do have. So while the reason we have this holiday might be very unjust and might be an ugly part of our history, Mm -hmm. we have it. And so it's very important that we make the most of it today. So do your research, understand why we have this, but then also take a moment to just be thankful for whatever it is we have. All right. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Um, These podcasts take a lot of work and we love doing it. This is definitely where our heart is, um, but it definitely helps us out whenever you do. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye. However, the relic, the relic. Oh, the relief. It's supposed to be the relief. And they did not have recipe. It was so close, dude. So So close. close. And and it's an epidemic that affects the dinner... And it's an, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Are both about missing and murdered indigenous women. Fuck. What do you have to say about Thanksgiving? Don't put it on me. Save me. Thank you.